For those of you who are visiting, as a congregation, we've been working through the Ten Commandments as we find them in the Heidelberg Catechism over the last number of weeks. Step by step, we've been exploring how they play into the thankfulness that we show to God and how they speak to our lives today. In connection with that, we have reached the fifth commandment, and in connection with that, we'll be reading from Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, the verses 1 to 4, and you'll be able to find that on page 1,347 of your pew Bible. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with, a, with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The Word of God. Related to this, we'll be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 39. And you'll be able to find that on page 555 of the backs, in the backs of your books of praise. What does God require of us in the fifth commandment? That I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother and to all those in authority over me. Submit myself with due obedience to their good instruction and discipline and also have patience with their weaknesses and shortcomings since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Who is the authority in your home? Who is the authority in your home? In today's society, quite often it's the father who is in charge. Things are run by him, and in many cases still, he has the final say in all kinds of matters. If your kids want to go for a sleepover and for you kids, if you ask your mom, she might say, go ask your dad. And in some households, try as you might to play your mom off against your dad to get permission. It just doesn't work. If you get in trouble in such households, the dad might be the disciplinarian too. Littler things might be dealt with immediately, but if it's bigger, just wait until your father gets home. He'll deal with you. In other homes, the mom's in charge. Ask the same question if you can go to a party and your dad will say, ask your mom. In some cases, the mom makes all of the important decisions in your family. And yet in other homes, you'll find that the kids are in charge. There's no hierarchy in the home. In these homes, it's a kid-archy, you might say. The kids have the final say. If the parents say no, the kids throw a fit until they get their way. If your dad keeps you from going out, you'll enlist mom and you'll try to pit your parents against each other until one of them gives way and you're allowed to go anyways. Such children listen to their parents as long as it's working out for them. Even minor inconveniences, they'll huff and do it anyways. But if it's something that they disagree with, they'll fight tooth and nail until they get their way. Who is the authority in your home? Today we'll be discussing who should be the authority in your home. 
and it won't be any of those three. Today, we'll be looking at the home under the heading and at society as a whole under the heading, God's rule begins in the home. And we'll deal with three things, although not necessarily in chronological order in this sermon, because they're fairly tightly intertwined concepts. We'll see first, to whom honor is due, second, how do we honor them, and third, why we should honor them. Families are the building blocks of society. Throughout all of redemptive history, God has chosen to do his work through families. When we speak of families in the Old Testament, they are the building blocks of God's people. He begins with the family of Abraham, with his promise to the family of Abraham, and through that builds an entire nation. Again, in the New Testament, we can see how families are the building blocks of the way things go. When God invites people into fellowship with him, when people join together in a church, that is called a family as well. All of us here are members of the household of God. It's no surprise then, having seen that, that the first commandment that speaks about our dealings with our neighbor begins with the family. This is the first commandment that goes after the discussion of how we love God. It lays the foundation for how we love our neighbor. In this commandment, the fifth commandment, we read the words, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon, which, upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And it's with this lens that we look at the words about obedience in our passage in Ephesians today. Today we read the words, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And it's the first word of the fifth commandment, honor, that I want to pay special attention to today. This is what undergirds the building blocks of society. Honor is the basis, the foundation of the relationship between children and their parents. Honor is what children are expected to show their parents, and this honor is not conditional. This is not on the basis of if their parents have earned their honor. It's simply what God expects of the youngest members of his people. The Hebrew word for honor used here is one which is often used in connection with God, which is surprising because in this case, it's used in connection with a person. If you look at the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for honor in the fifth commandment is used in connection with God. It's a word that, simply, that goes far beyond simply outward obedience. God doesn't settle for outward obedience, and for the most part, we are all familiar with that. But it's interesting here that honor and this inward obedience is something that God also uses in our relationships with our parents. Honor refers to an obedience that flows from reverence and respect for our parents. 
Now, this might seem hard for some of you teens today, especially in today's day and age. I don't want to pick on you, but you are the target group for most of media today. With the family being undermined so aggressively, dads are portrayed by Hollywood and sitcom as being bumbling fools who don't know much about life or their kids. They are constantly being disrespected, or they're showed in a disrespectful way on screen. They're mocked because they are displayed at not being worthy of respect. At the risk of stereotyping, it's pretty classic to believe at your age that you know better than your parents. And I don't say this simply because it's a stereotype. I say this because I was a teenager once. At least with some things. They won't let you, if they won't let you party or buy something for you, but you don't fully understand the reason why or think it's a big deal, it's tempting to go the way with the world, to think you know better. The world takes a completely different perspective on our, their relationship with their parents. Your friends might talk about what they would do if it was their parents that said no. Now, they wouldn't let their parents keep them from going to this or that movie. They might even speak about your parents needing to earn your respect before they'll listen to them. Their parents need to prove that they have their child's best interests at heart, but it doesn't just stop there. The proof also needs to measure up to that child's opinion of what is right and wrong. But God says no. God commands his people to honor their fathers and their mothers and to treat them with respect and reverence. So how does this play out? One example of how this plays out can be found in Proverbs 3. In Proverbs 3, verse 1, we read, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. This shows that it begins with the father addressing his son. With these words, the author of Proverbs echoes the words of the fifth commandment while addressing his son. He also brings to the foreground the importance of his position in teaching his son as well. With this combination of his spending time and investing, with, investing in his son by teaching him and his son's obedience in response to that teaching, it lays a groundwork for a life that will, as a rule, bring long life, peace of mind, and peace in his interactions with others. Fathers, as those who are the heads of your household, you should never underestimate the importance of your task with regards to this. What are the words that your children mostly hear from your mouth? What are the words that they hear? Are they mostly just discipline? Are they mostly just you telling your child not to bother you after a long day of work when you just rather sit back? Or do you show love? Do you teach them? Do you take the time to instruct them? This can be an intimidating thought for you. You may not feel like you know much in some cases, and 
therefore feel like you don't have much to teach your child. It's easier just to leave that to the teachers at the Christian school or leave that to the minister who's teaching catechism or whoever else is teaching catechism at the time. This can be especially the case if your knowledge of the Bible is not where it should be or not where you'd like it to be. But don't let that be a hindrance. Take these moments to be an occasion for learning as well. Google it if you have to. Never will you learn as much as when you're studying with the intent to share that knowledge with someone else. Both you and your children will be blessed by it. But Proverbs 3 doesn't end here. And we see the parent-child relationship is expanded on. But instead of focusing on the child's physical father, it grows in size to also include God, that child's spiritual father. We read in the following verses, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And ultimately, That is the reason why we trust our earthly parents. It's because they have been placed in authority over us. God has chosen to rule over us and to direct our lives through them. When they are carrying out their tasks in shepherding us and raising us up in the way we should grow, they are acting as instruments in God's hands. They are ultimately acting as extensions of his perfect fatherly love, although they themselves might be imperfect creatures. Now, I want you to take special note of this point. Kids, your parents, as authority figures, are extensions of God's love. They are extensions of God's fatherly love and care for you. Parents, you are extensions of God's fatherly love and care for your children. When you act, you must act as those who are in the position of reflecting God's fatherly care. When your children are first introduced to the reality of God as Father, they think of you. Do they receive an accurate view? We'll talk more about that later, but for the moment I want to dwell on one point in particular. Parental authority is a reflection of God's precious fatherly love for his children. And in this way, obedience to the fifth commandment is ultimately obedience to God. And this is where it gets interesting. Because seen in this light, the commandment suddenly takes on a much broader scope. For God is the author of all authority, and therefore all authority extends from his fatherly authority. This is what we can see throughout Scripture as well with the commands of people to obey the authorities. Consider what Paul writes in Romans 13, verse 1 to 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. This is speaking mainly of government, but it also applies in the home. It also applies in every other situation. Because this is the case, all authority is to be obeyed. And simple outward obedience isn't enough either. 
Paul goes on to write in that chapter, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, we can accept that. Customs to whom customs, we can accept that. But it also says, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And these are the heart issues. The Christian is called to submit wholeheartedly to the rule of those who are in authority over them because in that way they are submitting to God. For it is our Heavenly Father's will to rule us by their hand. And so we must give honor to whom honor is due. Slaves to masters, Ephesians 6 verse 5. Wives to husbands, Ephesians 5 verse 22. The church to its leaders, Hebrews 13 verse 17. Younger men to older men. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, and citizens to governing authorities, Romans 13, verse 1. Beginning in the home, God's rule extends throughout all society. Beginning in the home, we are called to submit for the benefit of society and ultimately for the ben- out of obedience to God. At this point, you might be screaming to point out the obvious. What about those authorities who are outright unjust? What do we do then? Let's take a look at a few examples with regards to that. The first example can be taken from the Old Testament. We'll consider David in particular. David is well known as probably the most famous king in the Old Testament, the most famous king of Israel and the Old Testament as a whole. He was a ruler and conqueror and did much to expand the borders of his kingdom. He was also a former shepherd and poet, penning some of the most beautiful literature in all of history. This can be found in the book of of Psalms. Now, David wasn't always a king. There was a time when he too was under someone's rule, and the name of that ruler was King Saul. King Saul started off as a good ruler, but he soon went bad. Growing jealous of David's success as a general under him, Saul eventually tried to have David killed, but David caught wind of it and fled. Being the popular man that he was, David could easily have tried to lead a revolt and overthrow King Saul. However, while King Saul was alive, he was still God's anointed, and David recognized this, so instead he fled. Saul gave chase and gave David no rest. David and his loyal followers who were with him fled, but still time and time they carried out their task to defend the borders and citizens of Israel. One day it all came to a head. You can read about this in 1 Samuel 24. David had been chased and chased and chased until he was tired. He found a cave And he took refuge in it. It was a cave that must have looked bigger at the front and been a little more concealed at the back. We're not entirely sure. But as he took refuge in this cave, suddenly Saul comes marching by. He happened to be in the same area. Happened. Saul, with 3,000 men, marched up and stopped outside of the cave not realizing that David and his men were hiding in there. Saul walks into the cave all by himself, and to the astonishment of David's men who are hiding there, he takes a bathroom break. 
David's men whispered to him, this is your chance. The opportunity has presented itself. Clearly, this is the hand of the Lord and your chance for the kingship that the Lord promised would be coming your way. Kill him now. And here we can see that it isn't something that just happened. This is something that the Lord allowed to happen. But while he may have been able to justify to everyone else that it was God's providence that had brought him and Saul together on this day, especially after the Lord had already promised him the kingship prior to this, he knew that he could not justify it before the Lord. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to take this opportunity. But instead, David said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. God's word had spoken to him. The Lord had brought this opportunity before David, and David had allowed God's word to direct his life. Even though it meant years of waiting and suffering. David did not take that opportunity. He knew that whatever would come, it would be in the hands of the Lord. But as for him, he was going to obey his heavenly father. King Saul was an unjust king, even seeking to kill David. And from a human perspective, he deserved nothing of David's honor and loyalty. And yet David gave him the honor that was his due. Because the honor due to him was from God's appointment and God's anointing. The second person that I'd like to consider is the very person whose work we read in the letter of the Romans, namely Paul. Paul was writing this letter about submitting to authority, the one that we just read about in Romans 13, in a very hard time for Christians. Why? Because the emperor at that time was Emperor Nero, the very same emperor who eventually used Christians as torches to light a garden party. Such a thing makes our authorities, as much as we disagree with them, Sound not too bad, doesn't it? And yet Paul writes in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will to govern us by their hand. Even when tyrants and dictators are in control, God is still the ultimate ruler. Yes, they must take responsibility for their actions, and they will one day be answerable to God's judgment. But for the moment, they are God's tools in his hand to accomplish what he needs to in the world at that time. The task of a Christian in light of that is to offer themselves as a living sacrifice to God. To be a light in a dark world that demonstrates the glory of God. The final example I'd like to consider is that of Christ. But before doing that, let's turn together to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2 verse 20. First Peter 2, verse 20, and you'll be able to find that on page 1,392 of your pew Bible, 1392. He's speaking to slaves here, First Peter 2, verse 20, to servants who are to be submissive to their answers, uh, masters, and he says, They must be submissive also to the harsh, for this is commendable. 
And in verse 20, he says, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? If you've done something wrong as a servant, they treat you as property back in the day. And if you get beaten for something that is wrong, that you've done wrong, in that day they had the legal authority to. And so he says, what credit is it to you? You've only done what, what was a, what they, they've only done what they had a legal right to in response to your wrong. And then he goes on, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So far. Here we're given the example of Jesus Christ. We don't face explicit persecution today. Many of those slaves would have faced explicit persecution for the fact that they had become Christians. We don't face explicit physical persecution ourselves today, but there are many ways that we do face injustice. And we know from the patterns that we find in history that this injustice will only increase. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this increasing justice if God doesn't step in and allow for reform? God calls us to bear it patiently. So does this mean that we stand back, stand idly by as we suffer injustice? Certainly not. We're not to threaten, he says. We're not to threaten, and we are to commit ourselves to God, the one who judges righteously. But we do not stand silently by. For even when Christ submitted still, he called the authority to account, saying to his judge, Governor Pontius Pilate, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. John 19, verse 11. Christ pointed out that the governor, too, was answerable to a higher court. He bore witness to the judge who is in heaven. And that is our task as well. As we suffer patiently, we do everything we can to direct our authorities to obedience in God's word. And where that fails... As we suffer patiently, we bear witness to our God who is in heaven. In 1 Peter 2, God tells us that by our irreproachable conduct, we make it clear to all that we are suffering not because of some sin that we've committed, but we are suffering because we are bearing witness to a higher cause, to one that is beyond us, one who binds us, one who is above all. As Peter and the other apostles said in Acts 5, punish us if you must, but as for us, we must obey God. They said, we must obey God rather than men. As we round off our discussion now, as we round off our discussion of obedience to authority, especially obedience to mother and father as the building blocks, 
There's one final thing I want to touch down on. And this is especially important, considering that the question of authority and obedience to the fifth commandment starts in the home. And that's the question of abuse. Some will say, by this command, you're enabling in a big way. Every child will be made vulnerable. Why are you telling kids to obey and even be patient in the face of suffering? Now, I want to say two things in response to that. First of all, the passage we read is regarding suffering for simply doing good. It's suffering as an obedient servant, carrying out the will of your heavenly Father. That does not include suffering because someone else is preying on you. Someone else is taking advantage of you. Let me explain. And kids, I want you to take special notice here. When someone abuses someone in their care, when they hurt them and they don't have a right to, when they do things to them that they don't have a right to, being quiet and listening to them when they say, don't tell anyone, is not counted as suffering for doing what is good. They are preying on you. They are abusing their position of authority. And you do not do good by hiding their sin and enabling them to continue. I'll say more about this in a moment. But second, to those who do abuse, consider whom you represent. Your authority over that person in your care is a symbol of God's fatherly authority over his children. When you act abusively, you're acting blasphemously. You're telling this child, this is who God is. This is what he does. He doesn't act out of love for you. He uses you, and when he's finished with you, he casts you aside. You're no more than a thing to him. This is blasphemy. Children and others, in this situation, you are called to speak out. If you're told to be quiet, you must remember in your heart, I must obey God rather than man. And you are called to do this because while God's rule begins in the home and spreads out through society, ultimately the fifth commandment points to God's rule. Your honoring authority breaks the silence. Because by doing what they're doing, that person is dishonoring their office as parent or leader, and they're dishonoring God himself. As we saw in 1 Peter with the example of Christ, you don't threaten them, but you do expose. You act in a way that will once again bring that person back under the authority of God. Brothers and sisters, my little brothers and sisters, if you are in a situation like this, I beg you to talk to someone safe. Speak out about it to someone else. Yes, there will be consequences to that person. There will be probably very serious consequences for them, but there will also be opportunity for repentance and redemption on their part. There will be a chance to face the horror of their sin and to come before God begging for His mercy. Honor them by granting them this chance. Finally, in closing, for those who have failed, in honoring and obeying from the heart your parents, your teachers, your elders, your prime minister, or anyone else. For those of you who have failed in your positions of authority to reflect the fatherhood of God, his discipline, 
His love, His mercy, and His grace. And if you're a father or a mother, you know you've done that in myriads of ways. Not having perfectly raised your child. But there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. We have a Lord who perfectly submitted even to the point of suffering death on the cross for all of our sins. We have a Lord who is raised up to heaven and who now holds all authority in heaven and on earth in perfection. He is so much more than simply an example for us. He is our Redeemer. In His perfect submission, our rebellion is washed clean. In his perfect rule, our authority too can be redeemed. If we come before him in repentance, begging for forgiveness, he will wash us clean. And if we ask for his Holy Spirit to sanctify us and purify us in our growth as those who submit and as those who lead, we will see this perfection beginning in some small way to take place in our lives. We have a heavenly Father who is looking out for us. We have a heavenly Father who loves us more than we can imagine. We have a heavenly Father who is able to do so much more than our earthly fathers could, would, or should have done. He looks after us. He looks after his children and he loves them. So coming before him, let us repent, beginning in the home, and let us take the fruits of this repentance, thankfulness, and let it flow out to church, to school, to society, and to the world as a whole, in obedience to our Heavenly Father and out of love for him. Amen.